Pastor Rachel here with Restoration Church. We are in a series called Family Tree, and we have been having a lot of fun looking at our spiritual ancestors, um, those in the biblical text, and, and those who loved God well, and some of those didn't love God so well. But we just want to learn what we can learn, absorb from them some lessons that might save us some of the heartaches that they went through. Now, in the case of today's study, it's Deborah. And there's much good to gain from Deborah's story. She served as a judge from 1107 to 1067 BC. She was identified as Eshet Lapidoth. Now that could have meant woman of the town of Lapidoth, wife of the man Lapidoth, or even woman of torches for Lapidoth were the wicks that shone more brightly than most in the tabernacle. We don't see that name otherwise given to another person, so we're not sure and there's even some scholars suggest it's another name for the Deborah's General Barak, which we'll see coming to play heavily in this story. And the name means lightning. So there's lots of imagery around here for the word light and light itself. The world context is that the Greek, the Greeks have entered the Dark Ages and that Egypt has begun what they called the New Kingdom. And the context for the Israelites is that Joshua has died and a new generation has forgotten God. So we are post Exodus, but pre the rule of kings. God had rescued Israel from slavery. He had reclaimed them as his own and gave them a covenantal constitution or law and a mission to become a priestly kingdom and a holy nation, settling into a promised land as a base of operations, as a light to the nations around them. Now, the problem was this. There were people in this promised land that God had promised to drive out, but Israelites were not only in a battle to force the people out, but there was a battle for their own hearts and minds as these other people were influencing them with their own gods and their own ways of living. So as they were introduced to these false gods and wicked ways that the other people lived, the Israelites became influenced by that and they became like the people they were supposed to be conquering. They often disobeyed God and when God would call them to eradicate an enemy completely so that they wouldn't be tempted to follow after the gods or the ways of these other people, they disobeyed. Now, keep in mind, when we think of judges now, we think of this judicial arm of government in America today. But in Deborah's time, it was also this military support position, sort of like a governor. Judges were not necessarily these moral models, but they they were called in times of crisis. And especially in times of battle kinds of crises. And so the Israel, the unlike other judges, there was, you know, there was nothing ever said about Deborah that was negative in the scripture. She was basically the Supreme Court justice with all the flack that comes with that role. Can you even imagine the kickbacks she must have received being a woman judge? We don't know of any other women judges. There may have been, but we don't have any evidence of that. So she was a woman judge in the times where women didn't have any kind of role of authority over men and these men had to accept and live out her verdicts. And yet somehow they understood that she was God's appointed, despite whatever were the norms of behavior in the society at that time, they recognized her anointing and her appointing. 
And we know that God answers to no human on why he does things. This still baffles theologians. It still feels very disruptive to the status quo. But don't we know that God still loves to disrupt our status quo? Even the uh, Shabbai Hyman Encyclopedia of Jewish Women says this, that later rabbis acknowledged Deborah as a prophet, but due to their discomfort with women leaders, blunted her impact by speculating about her husband, reading her self-identification in the Song of Deborah in Judges 5 as hubris, and minimizing her role as a judge. John Calvin said this about her, it was an extraordinary thing when God gave authority to a woman. Still baffling. In those days, Israel had no king, remember. People did not have a unifying voice, a person to circle around that would lead them as a group. They were easily dragged away and enticed by their own evil desires. There are some haunting refrains from the book of Judges. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It often says that throughout Judges. And then there's another one that haunts me, mostly convicts me that all the people did what was right in their own eyes. How often are we guilty of doing what is right in our own eyes, even as we know what God might be calling us to? And if everyone's doing right in their own eyes, They're not doing the same thing, are they? They're doing what is right to them, which prefers themselves and advantages themselves. There's an interesting connection to me between evil in the sight of the Lord and right in our own eyes, i.e. serving ourselves, giving ourselves advantage over others. Ouch. There's a direct correlation, I believe. There are common ways that we justify our evil. And I'm not going to get into all of them, but I'm sure you can think of an example or two that doing right in our own eyes can translate to doing evil in the sight of the Lord very quickly. When we're serving ourselves, when we're sinning against others in our selfishness, it is evil in the sight of the Lord. When we do it individually, when we do it collectively, when we do it in systems, there's all kinds of ways that doing right in our own eyes directly correlates to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Even good intention people can fail in this. We have to be authentic before God. Let him search our hearts. Search me and know me, O Lord. So let's get into the text. Judges 4. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan and the commander of his army was Sisera. This King Jabin led a coalition of Canaanite cities against the advancing Israelites. Remember, the Israelites are taking their promised land piece by piece. And King Jabin led these indigenous people. They were descended from Canaan, the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah, from the promised land. They were known for worshiping demonic idols. All sorts of taboo sexual acts were involved in their uh, idol worship. They sacrificed children to the Canaanite gods. They were competitors for land and resources. Sound familiar? This is an age-old story. So here's a not-so-fun fact. 
since we're talking about Ham, the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah, did you know that the curse of Ham was used to justify slavery as Ham's son Canaan was father of the African nations? Now, the understanding is that Ham was the father of African people, that Shem, one of Noah's other sons, was the father of Asian people, particularly West Asia, and that Japheth was the father of the European people. And so we in America used this as justifications that they were under the curse because Ham had seen his father unclothed and there was a curse and therefore the African people would now be slaves forever. Completely out of context, completely not true. We are living under the restoration of all things, Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, all the things. But this is how a lot of people justified that. And it's an important thing to understand that we can take scripture and twist it to suit whatever evil we want to do in the sight of the Lord. The spiritual cycle is this within the book of Judges. Number one, they cry out in suffering at the hands of the Canaanites or whoever is oppressing them. Now, it's usually due to failure to put them to flight as God has instructed. But number two, God has compassion and he sends to them an Israelite judge to to deliver them. The next part of this is they experience a season of peace and rest. Number four, they slip back into involvement with enemies and idolatry and all that comes with that. And number five, they repeat it. So in verse three, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. And at that time, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labadoth, or woman of the town or woman of tortures, we're not sure, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came up to her for judgment. And she sent and summoned Barak and prophetically, we know, said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you position yourself at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 troops. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army to meet with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And in verse nine, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. A woman getting the glory for victory in battle was so not common. So using your godly imagination, what might have been going through Barak's head when she said this, that the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now he was a general after all. He was accustomed to battle and danger and glory. In fact, you might say his currency was glory. What was different this time? Now, it might be easy to think, oh, he was just feeling a moment of weakness. But we have so many examples of other judges who needed reassurance from God. Gideon comes to mind or Samson. I'm not sure. And maybe this is the way God always planned it. And so he was just doing what God knew he would do. But it's interesting to imagine what he might have been thinking 
Anyway, back to the text. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak and 10,000 warriors to Kadesh. And now Heber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites, that is the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had encamped far away. Put this one in your pocket. Heber the Kenite. We're going to come back to him later. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the troops who were with them. And then Deborah said to Barak, up for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? Here's Deborah's first strategy up. Has not the Lord gone out before you? We need this. We need this encouragement. What is it in your life that God is saying to you up? Have I not gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot while Barak pursued the chariots and the army and all the army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not one was left. Wow. 900 chariots of iron and all the troops that were with him fell by the sword. Strategy two, God will handle your enemies in the most unusual way. Sometimes we can trust God with our enemies. We don't have to fight. God is fighting for us and his ways are not our ways but we have to wait for it. We have to trust for it. We have to believe for it. And then we just stand and believe, don't we? So verse 17, now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of jail, wife of, remember Heber, the Kenite, pull that out of your pocket. For there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent. And if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness and he died. Then as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went into her tent and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. And then the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. Strategy three, we must be ruthless when it comes to the things that we let into our minds, bodies, 
souls and spirits. We must secure our fence. This comes from the book of biblical antiquities that behold, a mother is gone from Israel and a holy one that ruled in the house of Jacob, which secured a fence around her generation and her generation shall follow after her. Deborah secured a fence around the generation by being obedient to God, by doing what he had called her to do in a time where women weren't allowed to do the things she was doing. She was defying all social norms, but she was obedient to God and courageously living out this calling as a prophetess, as a judge, so the call of Deborah for us today is to secure a fence around our generation and the next generation will follow our lead to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. That is a legacy. Can you imagine a legacy that your grandchildren say, ah, my grandfather, my grandmother, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Not they did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And what it takes to do that is to be ruthless about letting other things into our minds about, about being influenced by other gods, by other idols. We have versions of those today that we protect our bodies and our souls and our spirits, that we dedicate them to doing right in the sight of the Lord so that we may secure a fence around our generation and that generation will follow us. That is a beautiful legacy. Judges 5 is a duet of sorts. You know, this Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, saying on that day that when locks are long in Israel, when the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And then they go on with the story that, Lord, when you went out, when you marched, the earth trembled and the heavens poured water no the heavens poured and the clouds indeed poured water the mountains quaked because you arose deborah arose as a mother in israel when new gods were chosen when war was in the gates was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in israel sing of it you who ride on white donkeys who sit on rich carpets and who walk by the way Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you tarry among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? See, Reuben chose not to participate in this. And so this, this duet, the song of Deborah speaks to that, that Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan and Dan did not come and join in this. The Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, but the stars fought from heaven. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The onrushing torrent, the torrent Kishon. So what we see is this picture where they're telling the story about the, the tribes who didn't participate, who held back, who didn't trust this. And that God had said that the river overflowed and that's where the iron chariots got stuck in the mud. They were of no use, those iron chariots, because the riverbanks had overflooded. And now they were all stuck in this miry mud, really. 
Most blessed of women, Bejael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. Water, he asked. Milk she gave. She brought him curds in a lordly bowl, and she put her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the worker's mallet, and she struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. And then we have another part of that. I'm not reading the whole chapter, the whole poem but out of the window the mother of Sisera gazed through the lattice why is his chariot so long in coming as she is waiting for Sisera to return which we know he has he will not but the end of this it says this so perish all your enemies O Lord may your friends be like the sun as it rises in its might and the land had rest 40 years another cycle of rest and peace because Deborah had done what is right in the sight of the Lord. She had led the people into peace and rest. So let's remember these strategies up. Has not the Lord gone out before you put your trust in God strategy two? God will handle your enemies in the most unusual of ways sometimes, but we have to wait for it. And Deborah's third strategy but we have to be ruthless about doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. We have to protect our minds, our bodies, our souls and spirits from anything that would come against that rightness in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord. So we secure our fence so that you can do what is right in the sight of the Lord for generations to come. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful story of Deborah, the story that, seemingly upends all the social norms of what women could and couldn't do. Lord, that's who you are, a God who could do what he wants to. And so we submit to that. And we thank you that you have given us this example of a family member who has done what is right in the sight of the Lord and that rest has come for so many because of her. And that for generations... They would continue to know the legacy of doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Lord, we want to be those people who do right in the sight of you. Show us what that means to be your people who are doing the right thing. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.